Welcome to the Artipop Podcast. As the founder of Artipop, I've always felt we live in a highly conventional era when it comes to motherhood. But also that change is near. Therefore, I created this podcast to give voice to different refreshing perspectives around motherhood and life in general. To empower you and all the women around you to trust their intuition. I've asked a journalist whose work I love Kaira van Wijk to host this series for you. Let's use our feminine energy to shape the future. I hope you're with me. Please enjoy. Thanks for joining. This is your host, Kaira. Today we're having a close friend of Anna's in the podcast, Sean de Kroon. She's the founder of Sassy Vintage, consciously made luxury coats and dresses that she co-creates with women's communities the world over. She believes in shifting the gaze from the model to the maker. When she was younger, she actually was a model herself for a brief period, seeing up close how incredibly wasteful the industry really is. During a Kismet trip to India, she met a few locals who encouraged her to start her own fashion line to support and uplift women. Advocating for social justice and sustainability, she also works with the United Nations. In this episode, we touch on many sides of sustainability, from blind spots when it comes to greenwashing, to how to make sustainable living attainable for everyone in all layers of society. She opens up about cultural appropriation versus appreciation, indigenous culture, craftsmanship, and decolonization, how to connect back to nature, and how she personally finds balance. Well, let's dig in. Hello, Sean. Good morning. How are you? Oh, hello, Kyra. It's so good to connect. I'm really good. Yeah, perfect. I'm so excited for our talk. How's your morning? Um, quite cold. I live on a houseboat from the 70s, so I spent a lot oh, yeah. being a handyman like this morning fixing my heating, but it's been good. <laughs> Beautiful. I thought it would be good to start off um, with the extraordinary story, basically, of how you founded Sazi. We just start there. Yeah, definitely. And I think that also links me back to my to my mother. Um, so basically, uh, I grew up in The Hague. Um, my last name actually comes back to a weaving community in the northern part of the Netherlands. My last name is The Crown, which is sort of like a part of a 17th century weaving machine. So I didn't know this until last year, but there has always been this sort of element of like connecting to cloth. And my mother was a fashion journalist in the 80s. So she, I mean, she always came home with the most incredible fabrics and the stories behind them. And I think, you know, from a young age, I got a sewing machine and I just like, you know, biked to all of the secondhand stores and was trying to find fabrics. And yeah, I don't know, for me, fashion was this amazing way to first of all connect to my mother connect to myself and and therefore also tell story to the outside world but then of course growing up in in modern day uh yeah western society you also get conditioned in a way where you look at the fashion industry as it is or what it means to be a woman nowadays and i think you see a certain image especially you know i mean thinking back like you know 15 years ago when we didn't have the movements that are there thankfully there now mm-hmm. so at some point I was like, okay, so there's this, you know, this part that I connect to fashion and there's also this whole like glamour world around it. And um, 
just just after high school, I, I got discovered uh, to be a model. I was the least successful model in the whole world, but I at some point found myself in New York. And that was when I was 18. And I ended up in like, you know, the typical fashion industry model drama in a bunk bed, wearing polyester outfits every single day. And I, I kept on... Um, there was this really moment where I was just thinking like, my God, you know, if this story is not the real story, then how far are we from the actual story? And I think there are just a lot of questions coming up in my mind thinking like, okay, you know, if these like, <laughs> like us as a bunch of 18 year olds are trying to sell this story, but then yeah, what is the story behind fashion? And, and I think that was just like a really big question that always has yeah woven the events in my life together so a little while after I ended up um, being in Berlin and I was studying there and then during my studies I did a lot of traveling and I was for the first time really confronted with both the um, yeah the results of our post-colonial um, global society because of course you know when you spend some time traveling in the parts where actually fast fashion is made then you see you know the river the rivers that are colored pink and the next day blue and you see and you talk to the local people there around you see what kind of effects it, it has on, on on its society and um how much of that is linked to the to the everyday decisions that we that we make in uh, in the global north and um yeah when i spent on, on some level there was this element but then i think more importantly <laughs> there was just this whole world opening full of incredible women that you know that that I met along the way that told me about how they feel when they weave how they feel when they they wear you know their cultural clothing how they how they basically connect to their clothing almost in a there was almost something like very mystical or very spiritual around it and I was traveling both through India but also um, East Africa and uh, Central America I just kept on seeing these sort of like, yeah, just like magical coherences or links in between women, you know, like women both in Central Asia has have like discovered the ikat weaving. It's like, you know, it means to tie the clouds. So it's kind of like a really intricate way of weaving fabric. Um, but you can see that, you know, both in Guatemala, but also in Uzbekistan and in Indonesia and um, without them having really any contact with each other, just like the drop spindle was you know, women in the high mountains of Chichigisan, but also in the deep Amazon have sort of like, I don't know, it almost feels like in some really special consciousness, like channeled the tools in order to, you know, to, to weave their dreams and to, to create clothing. And I think, um, yeah, for, for some reason, you know, when you grow up in the, in the Netherlands, you have, uh, uh, I mean, predominantly, you know, it's a, patriarchal white culture and I think also when I look at my own education it was very focused around my both my mother and my father also very much into the arts but I was only educated with you know the Dutch like white boys from the 17th century who made some nice paintings and I think for me that was that was art you know and I think slowly as I was traveling I, I started decolonizing this perception that I had had of the world of what was meaningful and what was valid and what was successful and what was beauty and I think slowly I started to understand like oh my god you know like women have always explained their world through cloth but for some reason we've never really learned to appreciate this or see this in the way that 
I think we should. And then, uh, so there is all of these feelings, but then at the same time, I'm still a university student, you know, so I was like, okay, nice, but how do I actually make this work? And uh, then there is this really beautiful woman that came on my path called uh, Madhu Vaishnav. And she is the founder of a women's social enterprise in like a very rural part of Rajasthan. And she has the most fascinating story. I, I would highly recommend, you know, checking out what she does. But she basically started um, with a really big dream in the, the house of her mother-in-law that was completely empty. She started a women's project and she sort of was looking in a way like, okay, so what, what, what binds all these women together, you know? because they're all from a different caste and background, but how can we find something that really, um, that makes them connect to each other? And for her, this was uh, the, the sewing machine because every single woman in India receives a sewing machine as a part of their um, dowry, their bridal treasure. Um, so she started, you know, with her local sari tailor and gave some workshops. Then at that point I met her and then we created these few dresses together from recycled fabric and at that time I was a student and just fell in love with this woman Madhu and like all the women that she had around her and I spent two months there staying in her house and you know we went to all the weddings in her area and we went to her local sari tailor and I drew some dresses on a napkin and then all of a sudden these like seven dresses came out and you know although they were just a start and the sleeves were not exactly the same size and you know I was still learning everybody was still learning it was such a beautiful project because it was so yeah for me it was such a symbol of like wow if you really start to work together um, um, as women and yeah make a make a communal story through cloth not being like oh I'm the designer and they're the producer but like okay let's sit down let's see every day what happens and what comes out then something so magical can arise so I mean, that was the start. And that was, I think, in 2017 in, in Berlin. I came back with these few dresses and that got picked up. And then slowly it evolved into what it is now. And now we work with, um, yeah, the most incredible women's communities in Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, uh, Afghanistan, and India, both through um, individually led like female social enterprises in the United Nations Ethical Fashion Initiative. Hmm, beautiful. Yeah, and how long ago did you actually start, Sassi? Uh, let's see, in 2016, I started with, I mean, I don't know if you can really call that Zazie. I was standing on the market and I was selling some of the treasures that I found from my travels, but it was just a few Sunday markets. So I think the real start was in 2017 when I created my real first collection together with the Women's Social Enterprise Society Women. Oh yeah, so three years already. Yeah. And do you feel like, because basically you're really supporting these crafts that are also telling the stories of well, our ancestors and their ancestors, of course, do you feel they're getting lost in a way if we only invest in like fast fashion or, you know, if that, if that is neglected? Totally. No, but I think this is, you know, this is such a beautiful thing. And I even went to the, to the costume department um, of a really small village called Marken. It's in, it's in the north of Holland. <laughs> Mm -hmm. early in the summer and it was such an interesting thing because you know like let's say for centuries and centuries and centuries you know if you look at cloth on like a on like a really base level you always see like two elements like there's nature so you can recognize 
Mm -hmm. You know, for example, like linen comes from flax seeds that grows, you know, in certain parts of Europe, can also grow in many different places. But normally you could always recognize where where a piece of a garment was made because you knew where the where the flower or where the plant grew. So it was always linked to some sort of natural, you know, surround. And then especially with the colors, you know, we work with a lot of natural dyes now. So it's really interesting to see like, wow, you know, like the deepness of, let's say, you know, like a saffron dye or that the onion skin dyes are very different Uzbekistan or to Afghanistan and even in Holland you know we all had our natural dyes or natural way of sort of you know making making cloth and weaving that um, with our hands and normally when you would uh, choose you know a piece of cloth you would probably go in your own community you know even in let's say quote-unquote like indigenous uh, northern Europe you would know the local lady from the village because you know she's called Baukia and she makes the best cross stitch so if you would get if you would get your you know waistcoat you would probably go to her because you just know that she can make the the most beautiful you know uh, garment of the women's community or if you wanted to go you know this so this is very this has been a part of our society for always and ever and at some point Um, we started to shift that gaze, you know, from the maker to the model. And I think that is something that happened in our sort of post-colonial fashion industry. And I think that that by that, by doing that, by glamorizing, you know, a model instead of a maker, Mm -hmm. um, it took away any sort of uh, connection that we could have to cloth, because of course you're never going to connect to, you know, a story that's not real. And I think, that's the whole thing when when it comes to working with these like incredible female artisanal uh, communities like it is such an amazing thing to see them or to see them and to see myself you know it is really this like connecting back like okay what do what story do we want to tell with fashion and of course then there's the story of our ancestors there's the story of heritage there's the story of our individual creativity and I think what I really wanted to do, and I think, you know, that's also, I think, another topic that we can discuss, which is like the cultural appropriation versus appreciation versus like, you know, celebration. Yeah. I think the most important thing is that when you, you know, I feel like when I, when I buy a garment, I want to feel the story of its maker loud and clear. Like I want to feel her craft, her ancestors, her knowledge, her wisdom. So I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, for me, it doesn't make any sense making like a white t-shirt in India because I feel like when you would go to a country like India, you have to work, you know, like with the most amazing, let's say like Kadi handwoven, you know, beautifully spun cotton or you work with, you know, like the, in different parts, like a shibori dye or like with the ikat, you know, weaving. So I feel like whenever you do work with another country, like value that country for its legacy and craft. And I think, um, yeah, for me, that is the most important topic of, of fashion and um, yeah, also such a big invitation for this sort of like ancestral healing that I feel like we're all globally going through right now. Yeah, totally. And I think it's so, so true what you're saying. There's this huge disconnect basically between we have our clothes, but we have no idea who the makers are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I guess for from, from most, most labels that you buy from, you have no idea who is making these clothes? Like, how can we change this? Because with Sassy, of course, uh, you have a great example of how you could do this. People know, like, who made it, which uh, women's communities. But there are so many labels where that's sheer impossible to trace who made this. You know, like, where to even start, you know? 
yeah, we have such a long way to go. <laughs> I totally feel you. And I think this is also the weird thing that we have now in our modern day and age is that we're trying to fit all of these sort of things like spirituality or sustainability in like a very disconnected individualistic uh, capitalist society. And I think that is sort of the the hardship that we're gonna have to go through the next few years, you know, because in the end, like spirituality has nothing to do with uh, you being more like woke than other people. It has to something to do with you serving your community, you know? And I think mm. all of these different things are going to tremble down in our society slowly, slowly, slowly. Um, but I also really feel that with sustainability because, you know, like sustainability is not for sale. And I keep on saying this over and over again, because I keep on seeing, you know, like really big companies or small companies like selling sustainability, which is inherently like uh, not possible. Mm-hmm. Like sustainability has to do something with the way that you relate to your clothing. So I feel like brands have an inherent responsibility of facilitating that connection. Like brands are nothing more than storytellers of cloth. And I think that this really special connection that, you know, when I ask you or anybody around me, like, what is your favorite piece in your wardrobe? You always have a great story. You know, it'll be like the scarf that your grandmother gave you, or it will be, you know, this dress that you once found in a little back alley or, you know, this little shoe that you gave your first kiss in I don't know it also it always has a magical story you know and I think this inherent sustainability it is this sort of profound connection that you have to the world around you yeah totally is it actually a good thing to start a new sustainable fashion label or wouldn't it be better to just not have any more labels no I think that's a really good question I think there is Definitely. I think everybody has to start their own fashion brand if you want to do it in a really, you know, in a, in, in a conscious way and like really work together. Because I think in the end, what I really believe in is that Sazi only serves a very specific group of people that are into these colors and stories and textiles. And, you know, it's, it's a certain style. But if you would, let's say, work in a similar way, and I know so many people and brands around me and owned by all kinds of different backgrounds that are that are doing this and I think in the end that that can bring so much goodness if everybody would shop at these like singular brands then a big retailer because I think in the end these are the the things that are going to shape the future so I would definitely recommend starting because I think it'd be great if there is no like big big major companies anymore it would be amazing if fashion like any industry can be uh, people owned and not big corporation owned. Totally, yeah. So basically, those small ethical labels would have to start taking over. It needs to start somewhere. It's like a small wave that needs to start growing. And we as individuals can invest in that, of course. Exactly, yeah. And you also said, like, you touched on also how sustainability is, um, right now at least, I hope that at some point it's going to be a norm, it's more expensive. And I can imagine if we want to move into a more sustainable future, we need pretty much everyone on board. But for someone working, say, three jobs, for very little pay, raising their family, the last thing on their mind will be sustainability, you know? What's your take on this? Yeah, and I think this is such an, such an important question because I totally feel this. And I also, I'm at both sides, you know, where, um, where I have a brand and every single time when we start producing something and, you know, we want to pay everybody, right? From like the silk spinners to the natural dyers to... Uh, the handwoven ikat that takes four weeks to make to, you know, Anora the maker, like, you know, hand grading uh, 
onion skins and mixing them in to create, you know, this incredible intricate textiles. And I look at the bill in the end and I'm just like, my God, that dress just cost, you know, $200, $300, just even in production price, which is virtually impossible for most of the people in the world to buy. And I, uh, and I fully honor and respect that. And I think, you know, there's just one way of, of doing it. But on the other hand, I'm also seeing so many, you know, I, I listen to so many voices around me where I'm just like, okay, how will this actually be feasible in the future? Because mm-hmm. how are you going to create a system that is inclusive to all and everybody? And I think on a, on a small scale, I think when you, when you don't necessarily have the budget to think too much about sustainability in terms of buying like handicraft items, like the most sustainable outfit is the ones that you already have in your closet, you know? And I think that really has something to do with like honoring what you have and what you can do with it and, and, and to like a swapping party. Like there are so many amazing ways to incorporate sustainability in your own way. Mm-hmm. Um, going to a local vintage shop or um, yeah, spending some time in the closet of your mother. So I think there are so many different items to this, but the, for this, it is really important that, you know, global mainstream culture is not selling you, you know, like Instagram, easy, purchasable, um, you know, five pound garments. Yeah. Because I think that is in the, the biggest problem behind it. So there has to be a consciousness about that and about the effects of that um, in every single layer of society, if that sort of answers mm-hmm. the question. It was a bit all over the place, but if you know what I mean. Yeah, but I totally understand what you're saying. I was also wondering, and of course, it's kind of like a combination, but where do you think the responsibility lies when it comes to sustainability and ethical fashion? Do you think it's individuals, policymakers, companies? Because of course, you and I can make um, good decisions in our daily lives, but then we don't have any influence on certain policies, you know. Where do you think responsibility lies? Uh, this is such a good question as well. Um, yeah, it trembles down to all layers, I feel, because in the end, you know, it is the the culture shapers or, you know, the the sort of like influencers. And with that, I don't mean necessarily Instagram influencers, but influencers when it comes to arts and crafts and culture and music and all of these different layers that influence a broader public on what is uh, what they're aware of and what they value. Mm-hmm. And I think from that, that will tremble down again into politics because in the end, that is the, the sort of consciousness or the, the framework that people will think in. So I think maybe it can start a lot with the culture shapers and I think at some point it will tremble down to politics but then again politics and big finance and all of these different corporations they they're very much dependent on each other we're in a very like like very dependent system all of each other so I think it is a global and a collective effort and at the same time a really individual effort that you have to make and create. I was also wondering because your topic of course and you touched on that already is really about how sustainability is linked to the people who make the clothes which is all about social justice and decolonization. Mm -hmm. What would you like people to know to like understand better when it comes to the makers, the clothes and the link to post-colonialism basically um i think um we have been you know like for me decolonization has been a major part of the past few years uh and has really trembled down to every single layer of the way that i view the world and i think that had a lot to do with 
just working with so many cultures and learning from so many different cultures and spending time in the Amazon and visiting the incredible, you know, indigenous communities that are really on the forefront of climate change and at the same time carry the most incredible knowledge on how we can transform as a global society. So I feel like a lot of that also had to do with like facing this sort of like heavy weight of the past of my own ancestors and being like, oh my God, like we brought a field system to the entire world and put our view up onto others. And I think navigating that, the the first layer, there was just a lot of heaviness and a lot of guilt and a lot of like, oof, you know, how will I navigate this for me and how will I make others aware, but do that with a sense of also just because in the end for me, decolonization is just like a way of refalling in love with the world mm. because we truly learn to see, you know, others for the way that they are. They are not others, but they're, you know, same. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the concept of othering, I think that's what we've always done. And we've done that in small ways. I mean, in Holland, there has been so many different layers of racism, you know, both, both to the black community, but also to, you know, the Turkish American community that came here in the 60s to rebuild our country. Um, so I grew up, I think probably this too, you know, with a lot of, um, Islamophobia and a lot of these different layers and what I've learned the last few years is by having so many Moroccan and Afghan and all kinds of friends around me is that you know the other started to have a whole story in and I think slowly I start to become just like fall so heavily in love and I was just like wow you know it's such a important thing that media tells the whole story that fashion tells the whole story mm-hmm. because otherwise will have a very limited way of looking at the world. And I think this has to do with everything, you know. Um, This also has to do with the way that we view Africa because it's not a country of like aid projects and poverty. It's it's the most incredible sacred knowledge uh, like continent that um that i've that i've gotten to know and the same with with the textiles that we that we view is that we fully view the whole story behind it and with with for example the maker like for me you know they can hold an i major clothing sign but in the end like that's not going to do it like you know like when you want to tell the story of the maker tell the story like for me i want to almost feel the way she touches her baby at night and then like presses pomegranate juice you know in the in margilan uzbekistan then i want to understand like how she feels you know when she weaves her it got in like early morning before the sun rises. I want every single body to understand the whole story behind it and really see and honor and respect the humans behind it. Not as a way of like, oh, you know, great that she got paid or the fair wage. Mm-hmm. But should not receive any, you know, applause. <laughs> but yeah. to fully understand like who is she as a human? Who is she? Who is she as a mother? You know? And I think this is such an important thing. And I think that is, that trembles down as on all layers of decolonization. It's just a way of asking the question, like, what is the story behind it? What is the full story? Like, how can I listen to the story from their perspectives or with their, I don't mean like an othering there, but I mean like, a, like, what is the full story? And how can I learn from that? And what can we learn from each other? Yeah. Totally. I also wanted to ask you really, um, I was super interested in this about cultural appropriation and you did a story about this because 
I think you did an Instagram story or a live, I'm not really sure, about cultural appropriation versus appreciation. And I was really interested in how this applies to Sazi. Yeah, and it's been such a topic for yeah, for Zazi, because it is such a hard a space that we're navigating in because, you know, I come from a former, former colonizer. I am white um, and I set up a company working together with uh, communities from different backgrounds that were former, you know, like that, that came from a space with a lot of like colonial pain. Mm-hmm. And I think navigating this sort of um, yeah narrative that you then create together is the most has been the most humbling and the most amazing experience of my life, but also such a big confrontation with my own culture and how to navigate this in the most respectful way. And I think this is forever a part of like, you know, I'm still learning every single time. And I think mm-hmm. for me, it's a really, it really is like a, a way of looking like, how can we tell this story together on all different levels? Like how can we make sure that when a customer wherever she might be, buys one of our garments that she fully understands the story behind it, not only of the makers, but that also the models and the creators and, you know, the facilitators behind it are all well represented. And I think for me, this has been, um, yeah, an amazing journey. You know, we worked, for example, with an all Afghan team in um, this summer. Mm -hmm. And it was such a beautiful experience because it was like with three photographers that came um, through the refugee agency and they were guided by an incredible female photographer called Farzana Wahidi um, and they shot this campaign you know in the midst of like the peace negotiations around Kabul and they really told their story of Afghanistan you know we asked them like you know you have full like just show us your Afghanistan what kind of story do you want to tell the world and I don't know. There was just something they sent videos all throughout, you know, the five days that they were shooting at different locations. And it, you know, brought tears to my eyes where I was like, wow, this is this is so much more powerful when you create co-create on all levels together. You know, the way to truly honor everybody that is involved is to let them tell their own story. And a lot of these ways, if you're working with artisans, you're going to have a story of, you know, cultural craft which immediately gives you this responsibility of not appropriating that, but appreciating that and co-creating something. Yeah. So Sassy Vintage, of course, is also a platform to raise women's stories. You said that already around the globe. Um, Which women have really inspired and possibly changed your path and your perspective over the years? Say, name three of them. Hard to pick, probably. Such a hard one to pick. But I think... um, Mm, let's see the first one was Madhu Vaishnav which is the woman I explained earlier um, and then Putani Yawanawa which is a, an incredible indigenous leader of the Yawanawa community that I met last year and I think they, I think also my mama probably these three ladies but there are so many more ladies I feel like my whole life is around like women's stories and there is not a day without some incredible woman coming on my path but I think Madhu was the first one that you know I was so young I was 23 and she came on my path and she had such an incredible story of marrying into this family that her husband uh, Kajindra mm-hmm. His mother grew up in this tiny village called Bikamkor. I think there are like maybe one or 2,000 people living there. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but very small. Mm -hmm. Um, And this mother-in-law 
She was such a powerful force. You know, she took her three sons out of this village because at some point they they couldn't meet their ends there. And then she started selling cow dunk on the street in Jodhpur, in like the big blue city. And this was so successful that she was able to put her oldest son to education and slowly this family raised out of poverty. And she, Madhu, this is the woman, married, married to one of these sons, Kajindra, and she returned back to this village and she saw the, the, yeah, what was happening there with the women, you know, the inequality of the, of the caste system and all of the different layers of what women and especially young girls have to go through from child marriage to dropping out of school when they're 13 and uh, start bleeding. And there were so many different layers and she... You know, she just did it. She rocked up with her sari, you know, learned like amazing English, got accepted to UC Berkeley with a full scholarship, I think. Um, you know, she enchants every single body that comes along her path and with such a powerful force and dedication has yeah, shaped a whole new story for a whole community of women in the most remote rural village, you know. And I remember just walking um, into this village together with her and there was this like you know just amazing blue house and there was nothing really in it except for like a few carpets and she just looked at it like Jean this is going to be the future of ethical fashion and I just looked at her and I was like oh my god like you know this is amazing I love you you know she just I think she sees she dreams and she sees and she knows um, so many things beyond yeah what I've seen a lot of other people do I'm just so impressed by every single step that she takes and the way that she also you know educates me and the second one was um, Putani I went to visit the indigenous Yawanawa community last December and the Yawanawas have come from a long history of uh, missionaries um, yeah, cultural exploitation just a lot of different levels of yeah suffering or system and um I just, the whole entire week was around understanding the damage that, you know, our Western society has done because also not long after that, I was in Kenya and in, I was in, in East Africa and I saw the same stories, you know, coming over and over again, you know, like I have this also amazing video clip of her, like, you know, they told us that our ways were diabolic. They told us that our ways were, you know, not good enough. Like they told us that we had to be this or that and they took our land. There's, there was so much trauma. Uh, but on the other hand, there was an incredible way of like, what I've really learned from her is, you know, the greatest act of as activism is not pointing fingers, but listening and reaching out your hand because at some point she also made very clear, she said like, you know, like we want to give out our hand to our former oppressors. We want to come and celebrate with you and show you, uh, you know, forgiveness, but also what that could mean. We are here with an open heart. And I don't know why, but spending a whole week there, I can just think about it and I can get so emotional because it was such a it was such a great act of, of humanity and what I really believe that activism is because it's not about call out, calling out somebody on Instagram or uh, calling out a big company, but it's really like, hello, human, you've heard us, but I'm here with an open heart and we can heal this together. And I really believe that's just like, yeah, for me, it was such a big moment of opening up my own heart um, and also understanding what it means to really yeah, I don't know, almost like change the world because it's because it was done with so much love and so much dedication, so much power and so much like rooted wisdom. 
Yeah, beautiful. I was also wondering, because you work with many indigenous communities, um, is there one particular community that stands out to you in the way they approach life in general, in a particular woman and motherhood as well? Oh, definitely. So many different layers. Um, yeah, there was this really beautiful moment that I traveled last year from Tajikistan. I went to visit a few communities in Tajikistan. Um, and after I went to the Amazon, but in Tajikistan, I also recently interviewed Tamina from a female collective called Ozara. Mm -hmm. And um, they have a very special, because the fabrics that we work with are like love letters from a mother to a daughter. Mm -hmm. It takes before every daughter gets married um, or yeah, sort of like the next generation comes, they, they embroider this piece of cloth done in all kinds of different variants and way in every single area. And it's like the biggest love letter of a woman to her daughter before she gets married. So it has all of the, you know, you know, pieces of uh, or elements of nature in it from, you know, pomegranates, like showing, you know, femininity and fertility and to, uh, to watermelon and like little peppers and all of these different layers have, an, have, an, have a meaning on its own. And then it's a really beautiful story because I think in a certain region in the Penjigan Valley, like all the embroidery is done on a white piece of cloth representing life. And then the, the embroidery is done with black thread representing the transcendence of life. And then through that, there are these like, you know, beautiful uh, red flowers that are the moments of happiness that we experience in the middle mm -hmm. or throughout it all. And then the mother traditionally uh, gives it to her daughter and the daughter carries it, the cloth all, you know, above her head and wraps herself around uh, with this before she enters her you know future husband's house as like a protection field um that was just like something that came to my mind that was very beautiful and mm -hmm. um, the way of like you know and I think this was done so beautiful because I afterwards spent some time with the Huni Quinn which is a different indigenous community in in Accra also in Brazil and seeing the women there and the way that you know it was there were yeah, there was a whole different story with cloth, but just on a motherhood itself, it was so empowering to see because I think what we often have here, and I have so many mother friends around me, is that this motherhood is sort of just like, it's almost like this, it's the most beautiful, but it's also a bit inconvenient. And you go through this whole like Western system and birth is very scary. And, mm. you know, like there's not really a support system around you because after, you know, 10 to 12 weeks, you have to go back on your feet and go to your job and what I really found there is just like this sacredness of being a mother, of giving birth, of having the entire women's community as your support system of, you know, having children, having all kinds of mamas breastfeed your children when you're, you know, doing something. It was this sort of like the sacred sisterhood that I feel like is such a big um, thing that we need as, as women around us. You know, I keep on talking about this with a lot of my pregnant friends is, all of these different layers of, you know, my God, this has happened or that's not going right. Or how will I, you know, manage, you know, the sleep or the breastfeeding or baby doesn't take the boob. Like, what do I do? Um, there is such a sisterhood that you feel in these communities and such a coherence and such a feel like feeling of the collective mm -hmm. instead of like me against the world with a baby that, Oh my God, like where do, where, where do I go? How do I manage this? So, um, yeah, I think maybe that's what I mostly see in the communities that I work when it comes to motherhood. And the same is also in Tajikistan. We're all in this together. Totally. Yeah, that's beautiful. 
Do you feel, generally speaking, we in the Western world have lost touch with nature in a way? Totally. And also, you know, like nature in every single, you know, when you look at every single indigenous community and every single person that's actually living in harmony with the land, the land has, you know, the land is not something that is removed from yourself. You know, you are a part of it. You cannot, you know, you, in, in every single thing you grow or you see around you is something that is inherently sort of sacred um, because you put it at the same position as as you. You're, you, you are nature and nature is you. Mm-hmm. And I think in Western society at some point, we have put ourselves above nature, uh, ourselves above animals, ourselves above plants and understanding and I remember you know last year when I was with the with the Yawanawa and the Huni Quinn it was so beautiful because they you know whether they they um, hunted an animal in the forest or they took a small plant from or a small leaf from like a humongous plant they did it with the same intention and gratitude as yeah, there was nothing less or more sacred. It was all connected. Mm-hmm. And every single time, they it almost felt like they were asking for permission and really valuing that piece. And I think that is something that we have been so far removed from here. And you have this in all different various of ways. You have so many cultures as well that everybody's called after an element of nature. You know, I think this is, this is happening all over the world where you know, you're, you call your daughter like, you know, ocean and your mother is called, you know, flower. And in that way, you're always reminded of the fact that we are no different from what has created us. Yeah. And I think that is, yeah, very far removed in the West. And I think there is this sort of whole, you know, deconstructing of ego and, uh, yeah, going to happen if we want to have a harmonious earth. Yeah start connecting back to that in a way yeah and move forward at the same time of course yeah so i was also wondering because you've lived in berlin for years and you travel the globe of course Mm pre-covid uh what's it been like for you to go from this kind of like nomadic lifestyle to settling down amsterdam on this houseboat in the north (laughs) yeah so healing (laughs) i think uh, no it's been it's been really good and i think i'm yeah my body and my my soul my mind are eternally grateful that i made this step I think we always carry this sort of like almost like internalized capitalism of that you always have to go somewhere or do something or be somewhere or be someone. And I think, you know, during the pandemic, I was with myself and my two rescue hens on my boat. And there were just months and days going by that I just had to sit with my feelings and it was so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I went through such a dark space. And at some point, it felt like I cleared up that space and I made just room for so much newness, you know, and I really understood the power of grounding and how unnatural it is that we, you know, we put our bodies in these like, you know, funny airplanes and we go all over the world mixing and not with our biological clock and all of these different layers. So I feel on that part, it's been very healing. And then at the same time, there's been a lot of family, you know, healing that I've been going through on a personal note and also reconnecting back to this to my ancestry, to my story, um, which I felt like was so needed because at some point I was like, 
traveling to all of these people that were so profound and strong and knowing their story. And I was like, okay, but what is actually my story? What is the story of Holland? What is the story of my family history? Like how, you know, I knew something with weaving, but I've, you know, I've been still, this why I'm going to the National Archive. I'm still on such a journey to just try to figure out like, like what is my connection? What are my roots? Yeah. So yeah, on a lot of different ways, it's been uncomfortable and transformational. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. How do you actually um, find balance? Because it sometimes seems like we have to do everything perfectly, also when it comes to sustainability, social justice. Yeah, how do you find balance when it comes to these things? Also a really good question. Um, I think personally on what, what has really helped me the most is stepping away from... Um, because I used to, I used to, like the last few years, I was always pointing a lot of fingers. And I think, because mm. I think at some point when you start to unravel this sort of like, you know, all of the layers of social injustice and, and problems within greenwashing and sustainability, I think there's just so much that you see that that is going wrong and that is, you know, told as lies. Yeah. But I think at some point I was putting in so much effort into this sort of really negative space where it's been just on a very practical note, just a very good and very nice journey to just focus on the positive, you know, to not be like, oh, this company is not doing it right, but to more be like, oh, this company is, you know, or these people are doing an amazing job. Yeah. I think on an energetic level, I think that has been really good um, for me as a, um, as an, like, you know, like, let's say activist, um, because it just like puts you in a more of a positive headspace and a more hopeful headspace where the world doesn't seem so overwhelming and, and like hopeless. Um, and then I think on a, on a way of like balancing it. Yeah. I think for me, what has been really helping is just, just doing all the stuff that, you know, just understanding when I need rest. And I, you can, I, I have like, I have my biggest problem is sleep, but my biggest force is sleep. Like the moment I'm slightly over, you know, there's something in my energy field that shouldn't be there. I don't sleep. I can really have insomnia until like six o'clock in the morning. So yeah, I have like a natural, like a, a break that's just like, oh, Asia, okay, you're going too far. And then I just yeah. know that I have to take time for healing and for myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, I think the, the biggest thing has been really stepping into that positivity and just understanding, you know, even there is negativity and people might project things on you. Like you're never responsible of the projections of others, but you're responsible of the intentions behind your own actions. Yeah. Yeah. And also when we talk about sustainability, it's also about the next generation, of course. And I was wondering, would you actually like to have children yourself one day? And are you hopeful for their futures? Definitely. I'm so excited for babies. <laughs> no, I'm really excited. I'm also really excited because I feel like there's so much clearing up that I did in my own life, also to my own, you know, traumas that has, have happened in my youth where I'm just so excited to sort of, you know, yeah, create or bring life to this earth if if it's I mean if it's if it's you know if it's up to the universe if that will happen but it will be yeah my biggest it's my biggest wish to become a mother mm-hmm. and to um, to yeah give all my love and and heart to a tiny little creature and I am really hopeful actually I think you know that's that's that is what makes a human life I think is hope and uh, an open heart and I feel like we're going through an incredibly uh, transformational and painful time where all of these you know big ancestral uh, wounds are being uh, are opening up and are 
coming out in this sort of way of like, whoa, like where are you even going when it comes to environment, social justice? But on the other hand, like this is the sort of discomfort that every single being I feel needs in order to, uh, to sort of, yeah, come to the next step. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And lastly, we ask everyone this question. If you would look into the future 25 years from now, um, what would you hope to have changed for particularly mothers, but also fathers and their families? Um, wow, that's a really good question. I think um, a sense of self, a sort of a sense of like, I think every mother has everything in her in order to become the most amazing mother and every human has that too and every father and every being and I think sometimes we have made such a difficult society with where you can have so many doubts as your capacities as a mother and I really hope that um, that space opens up and there will be like a uh, yeah that there there will be this sort of sense of like mothers know what mothers have to do you know we don't have to tell them what to do yeah more trust basically trust yeah i think that's the good word yeah yeah beautiful yeah well thank you so so much for this time um yeah it was really really insightful thank you for this yeah thank you so much i really enjoyed the conversation bye thanks so much for tuning in If you'd like to know more about Anna's idea of the new motherhood, head on over to the pilot episode where she explains more about this. Please hit subscribe if you'd like to be notified when a new episode is up. Also, we'd be very happy to get your feedback and possibly suggestions for new topics or interviewees. Hope this episode informed, inspired, opened up your mind in some way. Until next time.